The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, stop praying to the porcelain shamrock and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan, announcing show number 534 with guests Gabriel Tarok and Joe Camerly, recorded live Monday, March 1st, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms, WPF, Silverlight, and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com And by Grape City Data Dynamics Makers of ActiveReports.net Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications Online at www.datadynamics.com And now The man who's looking for a little hair of the dog But the dog's hung over too Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell here with you for your listening pleasure. It's uh, it's March. It is. You know what the three most dangerous things in the world are, Richard, according to uh, Rick Cook? A programmer with a soldering iron. Oof. A hardware engineer with a software patch. <laughs> and a user with an idea. Uh-huh. This is all I'm saying. This is what you're saying. And with that, <laughs> with that, let's get into Better Know Framework. All righty. So as you know, Richard, I have been going through some of the uh, assemblies in the .NET Framework 4.0 mm-hmm. where we have deprecated classes, things that are obsolete, no longer to be used. So today I'm going to talk about system.web.mobile.dll. Oh, yeah? And what classes are deprecated in that DLL? All of them, Richard. All of them. <laughs> so the classes are deprecated. The DLL is. <laughs> uh, there must be 50, 60, 70 classes in this DLL, in this oh, assembly man. that have been deprecated. Actually, the, the message for all of them is the system.web.mobile.dll assembly has been deprecated and should no longer be used. For information about how to develop ASP.NET mobile application C, ASP.NET for Mobiles, which is a link you can find at www.asp.net slash mobile. Nice. So it's all gone. All it's of all them. Changed. <laughs> Everything you know is wrong. <laughs> That's right. 
Who's talking to us, Richard? I got an email from Brazil. Oh, really? Yeah. Hi, Carl and Richard. My name is Rodrigo Sendin, and I'm from Piracigaba, okay? <laughs> A city near Sao Paulo, Brazil. First, I want to thank you guys for the exceptional shows you've been doing. You have a very impartial point of view, which is uncommon in this area, and your shows are a great inspiration to me. Awesome. I want to ask you two questions. Okay. First, me and some friends are planning to start a podcast about .NET here in Brazil. Can you give us some tips? Hmm. Um, uh, yeah. Just two words. Be awesome. <laughs> be awesome. Just be awesome. That is your tagline these days, isn't it? Yeah, just be awesome. Yeah. Well, and... Well, there's more details. Yeah, good a recording bit. equipment, and yeah, take we'll, some time to make a good quality recording. We'll send you an email. Yeah, with all the all of our parts ideas, right? Our yeah. trade secrets. Yeah, not really secrets though. We keep telling everybody it's not a big deal. It's just you know find out that making good quality shows is hard work. Mm-hmm. The second question is, when are you guys coming to Brazil? Oh, I'd love to go to Brazil. You must present a show here. Brazil is not just a place of soccer, beer, beach, and samba, although that would be pretty cool too. We have a lot of good .NET developers here, and I can assure you that Brazilian developers are very friendly, and our beaches and beer are good too. It's going to have to be uh, 40 days before Easter next year. <laughs> It'll, I, just, hap- in, it'll in, just happen yeah. to coincide with Carnival, but I'm you, you want to go into at Carnival, do you? Nothing would be scarier than me in a Carnival parade. <laughs> Nothing scarier. Yeah, Rodrigo, we'd love to come to Brazil. We'll have to work something out. In the meantime, I'll send you down a mug. And if you've got questions, concerns, ideas for a show, anything, send us an email. Dot rocks at franklins. Net. Our guests today are Gabriel Torok and Joe Camerly from Preemptive. Uh, Gabe is a founding principal at Preemptive. He has significant experience in software development, as well as broad functional experience in operations, sales management, marketing, and finance. Gabriel has authored two technical books, and he's been a speaker on various topics related to software at many national and international conferences, including Software Developers Conference, SD Best Practices Conference, TechEd, PDC, VS Live, and others. In addition to his work at Preemptive, Gabriel is the current chairman of the Northeast Ohio Software Association. Joe Camerly is a lead developer at Preemptive Solutions and has over 15 years of development and database experience. Joe specializes in application and data security topics as well as application usage analytics. Joe's active in the technical community as well as a speaker at local, regional, and national events. Welcome, guys. Hello. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, uh, which is which? Who's who? So, I'm Gabriel. Okay. I'm Joe. <laughs> that would stand to reason. So, we've uh, we've heard the name Preemptive, and we've used your product since, well, since Visual Studio, the first .NET Visual Studio. And um, we all know about the Obfuscator. Dotfuscator? Dotfuscator, that's right. For those who don't know, that's an obfuscation tool that you can use to uh, scramble your IL code so that when it gets decompiled with Reflector or anything like that, uh, you can't really tell what's going on. So what what are you guys, you guys are doing some new and exciting stuff. What uh, Tell us the broad scope of what Preemptive does. Okay, so the, the broad scope is, is we sort of view ourselves as a, as a company that, that creates software 
to protect, defend, measure, and manage software assets. So obviously the obfuscation, uh, you know, falls under the protection piece. Uh, there's amp- there's tamper detection and reporting. There's uh, analytics. But our, our secret sauce or the key to all of it for us is that it's done through instrumentation. So we have a really strong core competency around taking apart IL, doing a bunch of stuff with it, and putting it back together again uh, in, a, in a very controlled and careful way uh, to add value to it. Okay. So there's, I'm really uh, super excited about some, some new changes or things that we're focusing on. Uh, and they're part of what I believe are broad sort of changes in the .NET and Visual Studio community around instrumentation and visibility of control over applications in the wild. So okay. what I mean by that is, is Visual Studio 2010 is going to uh, uh, include a new version of Dofuscator. So Microsoft and Preemptive have put a, a new version called Dofuscator Software Services. So if you're familiar with the old Dofuscator, forget about all that. None of this applies, okay? Huh. Um, I mean, it still does all the great things that you're used to it doing, but there's a whole new level of things, a whole new class of features and services that are based on code injection, things like tamper defense and notification, as well as performance and application analytics. Uh, the fact that Microsoft outsourced the work to us is irrelevant. It's fully f- functional and inside Visual Studio. Uh, and the second is Microsoft is going to be announcing at the Mix conference, uh, or already has, I guess, at this point, uh, the Silverlight Analytics Framework. And so as uh, as a designer, you'll be able to, to do analytics as well. Now, we, we're, we're, we support both. So we'll, we'll support analytics for developers as well as for designers, and we'll be able to aggregate that information. So that's the really new, cool, exciting stuff that we want to talk about today. So instrumentation has been around in .NET for a, for a long time. What do you guys bring to the table over standard performance counters and uh, that kind of thing? Okay. Well, we, we sort of look at this in a very different way than, than standard performance counters. I mean, typically, uh, when people are doing those kind of tools, they incur a, a fair, fair amount of overhead. Mm-hmm. Uh, they make your application, you know, run very slow. Uh, that's not what we're about. So we're about looking at applications in the wild, uh, without in any noticeable way affecting their performance. What does that mean exactly uh, in the wild? It means while they're running in production. So, okay. Not in a test environment, although you could use our stuff in a test environment. It works just fine. Uh, there are some people that are doing that. But but it, it it means that, you know, your thousands of apps that are running anywhere, your Silverlight apps, your your mobile apps, your, your back-end business systems, your web apps, all of that stuff can, uh, can stream back, you know, runtime intelligence. Uh, without any noticeable performance difference. Okay, so you can you can instrument existing applications. I think maybe is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah. We can we can we can instrument any .NET application. So whether you know, I hate to use the word legacy .NET application, sure. but existing. But yeah. you you can instrument uh, you know an application that's five years old without touching it, without writing any code. Awesome. So how do you inject the instrumentation in? Again, as Gabriel said earlier, we are very experienced at taking apart executables and DLLs and reassembling them in a confusing order. The way we perform the runtime intelligence instrumentation is very similar to aspect-oriented programming techniques, where you define injection points where you want behavior added to your application, and after compilation, a framework goes in and modifies the IL. We work in exactly the same way. There are two different ways of setting 
your injection points. Uh, you can either use a set of custom attributes or you can skip that, not ever have to modify your source code at all and use our graphical user interface to define the injection points in your code. Run your binaries through DoffyScator. It picks up on those attributes, injects the new functionality into the methods that are decorated. And what comes out the other end is an application that is functionally equivalent to what came out of the C-sharp or VB.NET compiler, or actually any .NET compiler, except it also has these new features added of being able to send its usage data back to an arbitrary URI for data collection, storage, and reporting. So these are just asynchronous messages? You can think of them that way? Uh, yes, they are standard ASMX SOAP messages right now. So we provide a commercially hosted endpoint. We provide a free endpoint open to the community. We provide a starter kit on CodePlex. It's open source so that you can actually take this, implement your own endpoint, store the data, and repeat report it however you like. Hmm. Or we can also sell you an entire implementation of the commercial endpoint for you to host on your own site. Hmm. All sorts of options. So what are we measuring here? Is this just the time that it took the thing to execute? Uh, um, no, there's there's uh, there's a lot of things you can measure. So uh, one of them is time. You can, you can you know, look at uh, how long a method takes to execute. So maybe there's scenarios where you're releasing a new version of your application and you want to make sure that you're performing at least as well as you did in the past, uh, if not better, and you could do trends over time. Uh, there's just being, just knowing that certain features and functions were used at all uh, is relevant. Maybe you've got a beta scenario and, and you've added 10 new pieces of functionality and you want to know that they've actually been exercised properly in the field. Um, there's a lot of different things. There's uh, um, stability. We can we can track some stability issues and report back. Uh, you know, if your application's uh, experiencing stability problems. Um, this sounds like the the office sort of when Outlook crashes, and I did say when. You have that whole <laughs> report back to Microsoft mechanism. It's very similar to that. Uh, as a matter of fact, the the broader part of that is their whole uh, customer experience improvement program. And the, the customer experience improvement program, uh, which I'm sure many of you have seen in Office and other tools, uh, you know, as an opt-in mechanism, we are we are fully that way too. By the way, the default implementation of of DoffyScatter software services, you know, has that whole opt-in mechanism, right? Because I mean, right. it's not in any way spyware. But but the the fundamental idea is democratizing that functionality. So you know, there's a company like Microsoft that spent millions of dollars building out a system to be able to to track. Uh, stability issues and to be able to track how people in the field are using it. Uh, and, and they actually make some very important design decisions based on that information. So new versions of Office have improvements over old ones based on, on that data. It's, it's like having a, uh, you know, it's like getting rid of your focus groups, but having a 24-7 focus group running, right? Where you've got the focus group is the whole world. Um, and and you know we want to we want that to be available to everyone you know and and obviously not everybody's going to be able to spend millions of dollars building it out on their own so um you know that's what we do so what's built into visual studio 2010 that we need to know about ah that's a that's a great question so um 
So Visual Studio 2010, uh, so there's obviously a lot of things that Microsoft is putting into it, you know, from testing to ALM to new languages. The piece I'm going to focus on, or the piece they've outsourced to us, is around, obviously, code instrumentation. Uh, so with, with the DocuScator Software Services, if you click on the Tools menu and you see the drop-down, and you click on DocuScator Software Services, every developer is now going to have the capability to inject new behaviors and they'll be able to perform tasks like we've talked about, you know, feature usage monitoring, uh, session tracking, uh, application uh, expiration management. Let's say that you want to release a, uh, a trial version of your application and you don't want it running 60 days from now. You don't have to write the code for that. You can just check off the things you want and it will automatically inject that. Uh, tamper defense and notification. You know, if, if you care enough to sign your application uh, and obfuscate it, don't you care enough to, to know if somebody's tampered with it and allow right. the program to react and respond to the tampering? Is this really that big of an issue? I mean, it sounds weird, but are folks actually trying to alter an application that way to, to be able to to exploit it somehow? Well, uh, you know, let me just give you, a, it's, it's not always to, uh, I'll give you a perfect scenario. So with, with the new features coming in, in, inside Visual Studio 2010, uh, code instrumentation is part of that. So let's say that I released my application and I didn't put tamper detection on it. Now somebody else code injected into my application the ability to track how it's being used or maybe other functionality uh, without my knowledge. Uh, I could very easily stop that by just turning on tamper detection. Wow. Notification, right? Yeah. I mean, it, you know. And then what do you do? Do you can you do you have like a you write in some sort of um self-destruct code or something like that? You know? you, you you can. So the the uh, for the commercial version it uh, for the free version it just stops execution. Uh, and, and it can notify you. The commercial version allows you to do your own response. So, for example, let's say that uh, this is kind of a cheesy example, but let's say you're writing a game. Uh, you know, tam- if, if a tamper is detected, you may not want to just immediately stop. You might just want to make the door from level four to level five not appear, so the person will be stuck on level four forever. Right? But the hacker, <laughs> the hacker won't know that, right? Because because they've they've cracked it, they released it, they think everything's good, right? Right. And, uh, they're not going to play the game that far to figure out that it doesn't work. Right. So yes, you can you can programmatically respond and do you know kind of strange wacky things. But I think a lot of the value is also tampering is no longer silent now. Uh, if you strong name or authenticate sign your application and out in the wild someone cracks it and resigns it, you never know. This is a way of being able to measure with real world numbers the impact of piracy on your applications. Really? Yeah, by default, what happens is a message gets sent back to the endpoint, stored and reported on, so you get real-world numbers of how many times your cracked application is run in the wild. Right. Well, this is the whole interesting thing about instrumentation is not only do you get that sort of root information of who's using your app or when it's crashing, that sort of thing, but also their IP addresses. You get some geolocation of where your app is actually out there. Um, that's right. Not in the free version that's available in Visual Studio. There are some issues around personally identifiable information that Microsoft and we did not feel comfortable releasing oh, okay. people's public IP yeah. addresses. Right. 
that's just the commercial version. Yeah, yeah. But it's it, and of course, there's going to be a certain part of the audience where they're going to want to run all that internally. This is an internal app, and it doesn't have connectivity to the internet, right? Absolutely. And that's where I think a great value of the analytics is. I'm a former in-house IT developer. And the operations people knew that there were work groups, departments that had applications running on some box under someone's desk. No idea if people were still using them or if the people that had used them long since left the company and do they need to keep running. Right. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who bring you the Web UI Test Studio for Silverlight UI testing. If you've already started developing with Silverlight, you'll soon need a solid testing tool for Silverlight UI. Unfortunately, there's no good way to simulate the actual behavior of end users unless you spend days and weeks doing manual testing. But things have changed. The guys at Telerik just introduced the first point-and-click UI testing tool for Silverlight. Web UI Test Studio. Check it out. You can quickly record tests with the cross-browser recorder, and enrich them with code if you have more complex scenarios. On top of that, it supports standard controls and Telerik controls. You can verify not only Silverlight, but also complex AJAX applications. And the best part, WebUI Test Studio lives in Visual Studio, so you don't have to leave your favorite development environment. Check it out at Telerik.com web-testing-tools. And hey, don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, Facebook.com slash Telerik. Well, I, as the, the uh, in-house developer, I removed reports or even whole sections of an application just to see if anybody screamed. Right. <laughs> that's, one, that's one way to do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was also the guy that, you know, I was good enough at my job, nobody ever bothered me. So when I felt lonely, I'd shut off a server because I get a phone call every time. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just me. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I, you're not there anymore, right? They, they, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't let me do that job no more. <laughs> but but I think it's interesting, this idea of just knowing how people are actually using your application, the, the sort of yeah. user experience scenario. We, You know, there's a lot of uh, corporate IT environments where you've got these shadow IT apps that are done at the department level. And at the corporate level, nobody has any idea what's, what, you know, what department level apps are running. If, are they being updated? What databases are they touching? Are those applications in disaster recovery systems? You know, should they be? Uh, it's, you know, we do have some customers that are using this as a way of sort of a globally looking at, okay, what are all the different applications I have running? Uh, how often are they being updated? Who's touching them? What are they doing? Uh, I'm not going to prevent people from writing applications at the department level, but I just want to keep my eye on w what they're doing. Right. You um you have a term for this, right? Runtime intelligence. Is this what you call this? Mm -hmm. That's right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the basic idea with runtime intelligence is we we want to make it very easy to gather application runtime data or runtime intelligence. Uh, at, with, for the purposes of providing insight into the application's use, adoption pattern, performance, the client environments, there's a lot of stuff we can gather, and a wide spectrum of other information that has traditionally both been difficult and expensive to acquire. And, you know, one of the sayings I have is, is lower the cost of knowing. So the fundamental idea is if, if, if the cost of knowing is high, you know, like in the old days before when you, you would send out a survey, 
you know, you'd have to print a letter out and put a dollar in it and mail it to people and wait a month to get the results back. And, you know, you, you might just guess at what people will say, right, because it's not worth it. Um, uh, or you'd be very careful about how many surveys you send out. Today, with, with online tools, you know, sending out a survey is very easy. The cost of knowing plummeted, right? And and if you look at, at traditional web analytics, you know, it's the same thing. The cost of knowing on the web. As a matter of fact, there's almost there are very few companies that don't gather data on how their web applications are being used. Uh, sure. And and the same thing is going to happen with app- regular applications, whether they're Silverlight, whether they're web, whether they're desktop. You know, there's a if the cost of knowing is low enough, there's a real value to knowing. I mean, you can make some very intelligent decisions. You can improve your products. You can build better software faster. You can, this whole idea of agile development, being able to, to pull back actual usage data into your, your feedback loops and make iterative improvements very quickly. You know, it's, to me, it seems like it's a very obvious, uh, very obvious problem. Are there, are there messages that you can customize as well? I mean, essentially, what, you know, I could write a, I could write a, web service, you know, where I could send messages asynchronously to it from an application too. And, you know, the, the, about things that are going on. I mean, that seems like a fairly easy thing to do. What's, what's so easy and powerful about what, you, what the runtime intelligence service has over doing it myself? Well, for one, your core competency is probably not writing, logging, and tracking code. Uh, it's a very similar argument to why not write your own grid controls, why not write your own dropdowns, frameworks, etc. It's, it's you're offloading some of the non-core but still essential functionality to a partner organization whose core competency that is. When you're using runtime intelligence, yes, you're, it's pretty easy to send data to an endpoint and relatively easy to store in a database as well. But then you're going to get involved in, okay, I have to report this data. I have to report it to technical people, and I also want to expose it to business people who are not as technical. And you got to write dashboards and things like that to make it... you got to write dashboards, you got to get this data, and you got to store it somewhere. you got to beg the operations people to create a SQL database for you. So it's like using custom control. It's a drag and drop. There it is. It's done. Absolutely. Right. And, and there's a number of other advantages to, to sort of writing yourself. One is that, um, you know, to Joe's point, obviously this stuff is tested, it works, it's, you know, streamlined, all the plumbing and infrastructure is complete. But the second thing is because it uses instrumentation, you could literally go back without writing a single line of code. As a matter of fact, you don't even have to have the source code. You can go back and check off the things you want to track in an application instrument it, output a new application mm-hmm. and run that, and all of a sudden you'll be getting runtime intelligence. So, mm. you know, something written five years ago in .NET uh, that you want to add runtime intelligence to, you don't have to crack open a new development project. Right, true. You can just go, just instrument it, and you're good to go. And what are, the, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about generally what these things are that you can instrument, but do you have a list we can go over? Uh, essentially, any method within your application you can decorate with either the custom attribute or through the user interface. Uh, you can decorate it so that you are informed every time it's executed, just I as see. an atomic event, which we call a tick. Hmm. You can 
measure the duration of that method's execution down to the sub-second level, which is uh, what wow. we call a feature. You can also be, you're also able to track your applications start and stop because the entire philosophy of runtime intelligence application is it's a conversation that your application has with the server. So when the application starts up, you've set a starting point as close as possible to your application's actual entry point. Data is sent back to the server saying, hey, the application started at this location on this date and time. The user runs through the application as they execute various methods within the application. That injected code, again, fires off and says, okay, now they've performed a print operation. Mm. Now they've rotated a graphic on their screen. And then at the point that they exit the application, uh, some teardown logic happens. Da any queued data is flushed out. You can basically write your own profiler. I mean, it's you, right, you decorate some attributes and you've got a profile of your application. Now the question, of course, is what kind of, you know, you don't just look at a gob of data. Obviously, the reports have to be pretty nice and understandable. Right. There's there's also one thing that Joe didn't mention, which is the the whole background. We can also we also collect uh, sort of all the the statistical information about what you know processor it's running on, how much memory there is. You know, the, the, a, there's a lot of background information. What version yeah. of the .NET framework it's running on? Nice. Because uh, what what we find is is that certain you know uh, certain uh, functions might perform fine unless it's running in a lower memory environment. Right, so yeah. you, you want to be able to correlate. I mean, when you think about all the different users running your app on all different types of environments, and and you're noticing a performance problem, for example, you want to be able to correlate that with details about their system. Right. Yeah, that would that could save save you a ton of time. That you know, here is a certain number of customers that are getting this error. Really, and the fact that you have how much memory they had immediately sort of gives you a flag of only guys with only a gig of RAM get this error, or what OS and what service packs and what yeah. patches and mm -hmm. exactly. You know, yeah. and we actually use that with our product uh, uh, to to give you know what we think are the sort of minimum requirements of memory to run right because we see when people are running it in certain suboptimal settings, you know, or you know, we've also seen strange things, not with our product, but other people have seen strange things when they're running different graphics cards and things like that. You know, I think we brushed on this a little bit before, but what are the legal implications for this? Do we have to ask permission legally of the user if we're going to do any ET phone home stuff? Or is that a nicety? Well, I, 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 think, I think you always should. Uh, so I guess, I guess it breaks down to, you know, where and when. Uh, if it's an internal corporate app, I, I mean, yeah. I think the answer is no. Um, if it's an app, you know, you're, you're, you're an ISV and you're signed to customers, you absolutely should, right? And it's so, probably just to protect uh, you in case, you know, exactly. it's a disclaimer. Well, and, and the thing is, you know, if it's anonymous information and, the, and the, the, you know, the categorization of that is you're not sending any personally identifiable information, right. which means like the person's name or something like that. If you're sending a serial number, that's not considered personally identifiable because it needs to be connected to some other database to make sense out of it. Um, so typically, that's not considered. But but still, you know, people would be wary of that. And and you, you know, we have opt-in, opt-out logic already built into our tool because we assume that you'll be doing that. Now, can somebody you know be devious and circumvent it? Well, yeah. But can somebody write this, their own thing to do this without 
you know, using anything else, of course, right? I mean, so, you know, people can always take tools and do bad things with them or do good things with them. And, and, but, but what our recommendation to everybody is you should have them opt in. We do it. Um, you know, there are some people that for betas, they have them have to opt out. Uh, because they believe that the beta, the part of the, the give and the get of the beta is you can be a beta customer, but we need your information. That's why we're letting you be a beta customer. Um, but certainly for any kind of application uh, that's running, you know, outside, you, you should have them opt in. They should be very aware of what's going on. And, and candidly, you know, as long as they understand there's a benefit to them, I mean, if, right. if knowing when the application is performing suboptimally, if knowing how it's being used helps the the end user write better software, then, you know, that's probably okay. You know, Microsoft has a very high uh, acceptance rate in, in their customer experience improvement program. Um, the majority of users uh, opt in, believe it or not. Well, and I think we've also seen the story from Microsoft that they're, they actually use that data to, to, uh, to uh, you know, prioritize bugs, that this is the one that most people get. I think that's the largest issue that I run into when we're dealing with production apps is, yeah, there's a raft of bugs. Which one do we take on first? I mean, it's easy if it's just crashing the app. You have showstoppers or showstoppers. But once you get past that, it's, well, which ones are most prevalent? Which ones have the most impact in time? And, and of course, I'm a performance junkie. So the much more subtle one is it's not a functional error. The app works, but it's slow. Where yeah, is it slow? Right. You know, it's funny too when you think about like when you go to a website, you know, everything you do is tracked, right? And we right. sort of as a society, we've sort of like, I mean, nobody says anything about that or cares, right? You know, this is the same concept and as you you think about the blurring of the two, right? With Silverlight, well now you've got a Silverlight app running in your browser or maybe on your desktop, right? Cuz you can run it either way. Well, if that's being tracked, how different is that? And obviously, you have analytics around that, right? How different is that from HTML being tagged? You know, it all kind of starts to blur together. Sure. It's, and and like I said, it's ultimately advantageous to the user here, too. Yeah. We track that right. for a reason. We're trying to make stuff better. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. As, as a developer, I really love using this software because previously, I I've had the experience, I'm sure we all have, you write. A thick client application, you write WPF app, WinForms, you send it off, and you don't hear anything from anyone. Maybe you're a consultant, internal IT, or whatever. You don't hear anything until, oh, it crashed. It's horrible. Nothing works. Hmm. You don't know what they did, how they did it, whether they even used what you expected them to use. Oh, I, I, Carl, you got that great story of the guy calling up saying the apps crashed. Oh, said, well, what? God, yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> this is, I was a consultant, and I was working on a website, and I was working at home, and I would get a call three o'clock in the morning, and uh, or maybe it wasn't three o'clock. Maybe it was in the morning, and I was sleeping late because I'd been up working on it, right? And and he just uh, decided to call some executives into the uh, a conference room and show the app. Now it's a work in progress. It, you know, it's not even a URL that's on the internet. It's just an IP address. So he pulls it up and he tries to log in and it doesn't work. So I get this call. I'm asleep. He goes, Carl, yeah. It doesn't work. I said, can you be a little more explicit? He says, it doesn't fucking work. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So how? 
Well, I put in my login and I go to hit the login button and it blows up. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, it's like, oh, okay. I will remove the it blows up feature from the code. Right. Oh, well, see, if you had runtime intelligence, you would know exactly what blew up. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes you need customer intelligence to tell you the error code that they got on the screen. And when I asked them, they said, I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, that's a wonderful segue into another feature. Uh, this calls back to a, a bit of a question that was formed earlier. Is there a way to send additional data? Right. And, yeah, we do provide that. In the commercial version, anything that you can stuff into a dictionary of string string objects, just nice. name value pairs, uh, we can serialize and send it along with any of the runtime intelligence messages that are going to the endpoint where it's deserialized, stored in a database, and reported on. Mm-hmm. So basically, you write a method in your code that returns a dictionary. You point us to where that method is. At runtime, we call it, get back your data, serialize it, and send it off. So you can gather the error code that occurred as part of that I blew up feature or as part of an error report. Now, are there any things that we've talked about so far that aren't in the free version? And what's the difference between the free version and what you sell professionally? That particular feature right there of being able to serialize arbitrary data at runtime is currently only available in the commercial version. Okay. As well as uh, some of what Gabriel was talking about earlier about the extended WMI information, uh, basic information such as operating system, service pack level, framework level that it's running under Mm -hmm. are available in the free version but some of the more detailed information that we can pull out, such as memory usage by the process at the beginning and ending of the execution of the method, total system RAM, hard drive availability, number of video cards, screen resolution, et cetera, are only available in the commercial version. Okay, and just for how how does the commercial version price by usage as a service? Um, so the commercial ver- version, uh, there's a number of different ways it's priced. There's a there's the a perpetual license for the Dofuscator product, which is the injection piece, right? So, yeah. uh, and then there is then it depends on what you want to do with it. Um, if you want to buy your own, um, you know, self-hosted portal, right? So we basically take and sell you the whole portal, and then you can send the signals uh, within your own intranet or send it to your own. Thing uh, so that would be you know also sold as a as a perpetual license or a subscription you can choose some people don't like subscriptions so we give people the option um, if you buy the uh, service where you know we host it in the cloud then that's sold as a, as an annual subscription because obviously there are hard costs uh, to right. us to to maintain and keep your data but it's the, the other the important thing to state there is it's your data we have no access to the data we have no interest in your data just like when you you host out to salesforce to do your crm you know it's your crm data it's not theirs right so it's the same kind of idea hey i just want to give a shout out real quick to our friends at data dynamics who uh, make activereports.net among other really awesome things activereports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor Embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, 
Give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. Actorreports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. Um, you announced, uh, or, or some things are being announced at Mix around... I guess we're recording this before Mix, but it will be... We are. <laughs> it will go on after Mix. That's right. So what was announced so, yeah, at Mix? So- what was announced at Mix before it's announced? Um, uh, so, in a, in addition to obtaining you know runtime intelligence information uh, through Visual Studio and our code instrumentation, Microsoft is announcing a uh, Silverlight Analytics framework uh, inside Expression Blend. And so, the the basic idea is that not only can the developer sort of decorate and, and, and track, you know, mark what they want to track, but the designer will be able to do the same thing through Expression Blend. And then so uh, you can have both the designers and developers connecting their work to the value that they deliver and tie them together for concrete results. So the, the interesting thing about the uh, analytics framework is, you know, it's not just preemptive. There's other vendors that, you know, pl- will plug into that. But I believe what our unique differentiator is compared to those other vendors is that, um, you know, we can collect information from your back-end systems from other things that aren't Silverlight, and we can aggregate them with your Silverlight applications. Um, We can also allow you, if you want, to keep all the data in-house, right? Most of those other vendors that do that require you to send the data to them, right, to their service, whereas with us, you can choose to send the data to your own endpoint. And then lastly... Uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but the custom data, uh, you know, features, uh, you know, that we talked about sending, you know, custom name value pairs, you know, that runtime intelligence gives you. That's something, uh, you can, and create custom reports and do all mm. that kind of stuff. That's something that we, we provide as well. Oh, cool. So uh, I'm pretty excited about this. I mean, uh, I think, uh, I think having the, the ability for both designers and developers to be able to, to track information again, as long as it's, you know, easy to do, uh, you know, the cost of knowing is low. The value is definitely there. Um, you know, we've got customers that are doing, uh, to the point of the, the custom data, we have some customers that are, have software that, that, uh, is an ingredient. So the software is actually used to configure a device and they have the defaults for the devices that they set. Well, one thing yeah. they found is, and they're not really sure about this, but people aren't using the defaults quite the same way. So it takes them longer to configure the devices. So they're actually using our, you know, our dictionary to send back what the configuration settings are that people are doing, and then they're they're improving the, uh, you know, the resulting default settings. They're also looking at those settings that are are coming back and looking at the returns repairs database on the devices to see if there's any correlation between how it was configured and whether or not it's being uh, returned or have to be repaired. So there's a lot of really interesting. Uh, very fascinating use cases that people are already doing with this stuff. Yeah, it's very much a uh, business intelligence type thing. Well, you call it re- runtime intelligence, but that that sort of slice and dice model of we have these events and then we have all this information around the events. How do we find correlations to help us find the bugs? Right. And it really feels like we've got two different stories here. One is may, you know debugging the app, figuring solving crashes out in the wild versus sort of feature enhancement or so that more that what I think of the soft customer experience type 
uh, uh, stuff where it's how do I make this app better based on how people are actually using it? Yes, but I think some of that soft customer experience stuff can result in actual hard money too. Uh, one case in point, we do use this internally and right now we are supporting all the way back to .NET 1.0, including in our Visual Studio integration add-in. Right. So I'm using this data to see how many of our users are actually running under .NET 1.0, 1.1 to see how I can deprecate our .NET 1.0 support without seriously impacting revenue. Oh, great. Yeah, just like the guy, the people are starting to phase out IE6 support in their websites because it's such a pain, and they're finally seeing the number of IE6 users dropping to a point where it's like, oh, okay, that's good enough. Uh, yeah, if that's you heard exactly my developers right. complain about how they can't use generics or lambdas or anything else. Oh, yeah. We write 1.0 compatible code. Oh, man, yeah, no kidding. Talk about changing your life if you could get it all the way to 2. Right. Uh, the funny part is we're writing 1.0 compatible code in Visual Studio 2010. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. We... we we won't be doing that much longer. Guess what the data showed us? <laughs> it, uh, Nobody's using it anymore? Yes. <laughs> uh, that's good news. You, 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 we talked a lot about how you instrumented uh, sort of the non-code way or the, the aspect-oriented way. Uh, is the only thing you can do in code that sort of uh, value pair stuff? What can I do inside if I actually am willing to alter my app to get more intelligence? What, do I, what can I do there? Um, well, there are a number of things. Uh, Gabriel talked about uh, tamper detection defense. Again, if you're right. tampered with, you can write a custom method that will do whatever you want. Uh, the application expiration, uh, you can set it up to, by default, shut down the application when it's expired. Or, again, you can call into your methods, turn off some functionality. Keys. One other really interesting thing we have in the commercial product is if you decorate, you can decorate a method and we will automatically serialize all or a selected number of the parameters, names, and values that are going into that method so that you don't have to write a dictionary function to take the values, the parameters, and send them back as a dictionary. One of our right. customers is using this. They do a whole wizard-based thing the only way to tell which particular pages of the wizard are actually being executed is by the method parameters. So this way they have a quick and easy way of determining which wizards are used to make sure that their user experience is up to snuff. With that, there aren't many other areas where we actually call back into the application code. We do try and keep everything very isolated right? so that you don't have runtime dependencies. And, and you see the normal deployment of the tool is the sort of injection approach rather than coding directly to it? Yeah. That's our... The that's majority of the functionality is yes. There's okay. a little code required if you, again, if you want to provide an opt-in, opt-out. Since we work on the IL, we don't know what your UI is. We don't know if you're a Windows service, WPF. So you would have to write and surface that however you wanted to present it to the user and also store their selection that you return to us through a method that returns either a true or false. Right. So the amount of code you have to write is just around the edges. 
there's also a, another advantage to doing it this way, which is, you know, typically when you're in the middle of writing your code, you're not necessarily sure what you want to track yet. But but sort of toward the end, you have a much better idea and, and also the ability to make changes very quickly and on the fly. You might have uh, an app that, uh, you know, is being distributed to a certain part of the country and you want to be able to track these things. But over here, you want to track these other things, right? Or maybe overseas, you want to track certain things. Well, with ours, it's very easy to create two different versions uh, of your application and, you know, distribute them uh, differently um, and not, not have the dependency be inside the code itself. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Hey, you know, somebody told me that you guys saved the Olympics. <laughs> that was a great. It, yeah, actually, uh, it was funny, funny story. So we got a call from Microsoft a week before the uh, Olympics. And uh, for those of you who don't know, the, the NBC has the, uh, the Silverlight player, right? Right. Uh, that, that shows the Olympics. Um, but Our good there friend was Scott a, Stanfield in his company wrote that. Yeah. Well, well, they have a, uh, a, a a mandatory, uh, I guess, thing in there that, that the code has to be protected before it's shipped because they don't want people reverse engineering their Silverlight player. Right. Rightly so, right? I mean, you know, the the risks of that is that, you know, you're pretty much giving away the source code. So, right. so I guess uh, nobody realized this until very near the end of the cycle, and then Microsoft called us up and said, hey, you know, can you do us a quick favor and just, you know, just take care of this, you know, for us. And of course, you know, we did. And and so, you know, they, they, they did a case study and all that kind of stuff on on uh, how we helped uh, how we helped the Olympics at the end, but uh, that was that was fun. I always like those kind of projects. But the very next step with with those guys is is the analytics. So, right. you know, again, there's just a, a lot of things. You know, you know, people want to know if you're watching something. Uh, just some simple examples. If you're watching a movie, uh, typically if the credits come on and nobody stops it, that means you weren't really watching. You left. Hmm. It. But if the credits come on and, and you hit stop. You know, that little piece of analytics information tells somebody, yeah, you know, somebody's actually watching this. Right. Um, so yeah. what you're saying is that there's no there's no reason to put credits at the end of any kind of video whatsoever. I think that's what I got <laughs> no, out of unless, this. <laughs> unless you, unless you <laughs> want to track if people are stopping it. <laughs> oh, man, that's disheartening. That's why those credits are there. What if people ah, wanted exactly to watch the credits? Who, who watches the credits? <laughs> oh, I'm so disillusioned. <laughs> and uh, anyway. what's your connection with the Red Cross? Oh, so so we're we're doing this. Uh, we're we're doing a uh, we're doing a little. I don't know. It's just something for fun. But basically, uh, if uh, you know, if you're out there, and and now again, the the whole point of this is for free and you can go ahead start using 2010 as a matter of fact we'd encourage you to get 2010 uh by the time this recording is out it should be right around the corner and and go ahead and try this go ahead and 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 you know play with this um you know either use our free endpoint right which is the default setting in visual studio or go ahead and 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 get off of codeplex the the ri starter point and 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 just stream some information. Play with this. And if you send us a screenshot of what you're doing, uh, we'll donate uh, ten dollars to the Red Cross. Uh, you know, we'll send it to places like Haiti or Chile. You know, for earthquake relief and things like that. Um, you know, I doubt ten dollars is going to make somebody go out there and actually do something they don't want to do. Uh, but you know, hopefully, if if you're already curious about this and and you want to, you know, sort of think. 
think of you know think of your own uses of, of how you might want to use this and how this would be valuable uh, to you and your own you know development process then we certainly would love to hear from you so where should we send that um, there is a URI that uh, is Joe do you have the yeah. I guess we, we're uh, going to provide the a whole list of these runtime intelligence Red Cross information is at shrinkster.com one Charlie Yankee Indigo one CYI and the starter kit that Gabriel was talking about is something we have out on CodePlex. It's a reference implementation of WCF service that catches the runtime intelligence messages, stores them, and has some sample reports, including a SharePoint web part on it, so you can build your own dashboard. And shortcut for that is uh, shrinkster.com slash 1CYL Charlie Yankee Lima. Awesome. And, and again, you know, for us, it's all about having this system be open and connected. So, you know, there's lots of ways to take this data and, and integrate it and aggregate it with other information or places where you might have data. Um, so, you know, we provide APIs to be able to do that. Uh, you know, if you don't want to talk to us and you want to implement your own endpoint, we'd encourage you to do that. This is not, we're not, the goal is not to build a closed system. The goal is, you know, let's, you know, let's really have something out there that people can use and, and provides value. And there's a whole other piece that we didn't talk about, which is the integration back to Visual Studio uh, for the agile development process. And I don't know, do we want to? Yeah, let's let's cover it quickly. Okay, Joe, you wanna you wanna take a quick crack at that because I, I just think this is really cool. Uh, this was we we highlighted this uh, at uh, at a couple Microsoft keynotes, um, and and it's really exciting stuff. Go go ahead, Joe. Okay. Uh, well, as you know, one of the agile tenants is to always make sure you have customer or customer representative accessible to the team. For a lot of shrink wrap software, other large systems, it's not always possible. And sometimes the customer representatives aren't always available either. So we figured with runtime intelligence, you're actually able to track what the users are doing, how they're using your application. So it gives you better focus for your next sprint planning to know, okay, we've had a lot of bugs here, we need to fix up on this, or feature such and such is getting a lot of use. Maybe we can look at some of the user stories around that, figure out which ones we can implement or recommend implementing to the business to provide better value sooner to them. Uh, And since a lot of .NET developers center around Visual Studio, we leveraged a lot of the new functionality in Visual Studio 2010, especially with the WPF code editor and the uh, MEF extendability model made it really easy for us to go in and build an integration so that while you're sitting inside the Visual Studio code editor, looking at a method that has a decoration that is being tracked with runtime intelligence, you can actually right-click on a margin and get a near real-time graph of that particular method's usage in the wild so you can track okay, it's starting to ramp up in adoption, people are aware of it and starting to use it, or, well, no one's actually using this, maybe we need to improve our discoverability. Uh, Gabriel and our CTO, Bill Leach, actually gave a presentation on this at PDC09, and I'm taking that and running with it at TechEd US 2010 and giving another presentation on it. I think I remember seeing this in the keynote at Dev Connections in the fall as well. You did it with Dave Menlin. That's right. And it was very cool because right. literally the graph popped up beside the code. 
Yeah, it's yep. really slick. Yeah, and that way, I mean, you're a developer or someone else who's working inside of Visual Studio, you want something relevant but not intrusive. Right. So it's not there until you go and look for it, but it is there so you know it and you know what your customers are doing. Wow, this is awesome stuff. I would really like to see this in action. Is there any chance that uh, we can get one or both of you guys to come on DNR TV and show us how it works? Oh, we'd love to. Absolutely. I think that would be, yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the Visual Studio extensions have to be seen because it's, uh, uh, you know, talking about it is one thing, but actually seeing how it works is, is another. Absolutely. Well, let's set that up. I'll talk to you after the after the recording about that. Our, our guests have been uh, Gabriel Torok and Joe Camerly. Guys, thank you so much, and I look forward to seeing the tools. Thank you very thank much. You. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band.